Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikhail Thorpe, and this is the Expat Money Show. Today, what I want to do for you guys is go through the last of our four countries that we're talking about in this series on our trip through the Caucasus and Western Asia and and Eastern Europe. So this was such a fantastic trip. If you guys have not listened to the other three episodes about this, then I suggest going back and listening to those ones first and then coming to this one because I think things will make a lot more sense. So where I left you guys last is that we were talking about Armenia and Yerevan and what a great time we had in that country. Now, their borders are closed between Armenia and Azerbaijan. So what we had to do was actually drive. We rented a vehicle and and had a driver drive us from Yerevan back to Tbilisi and drove us straight to the airport. I think we probably drove for six or seven hours or something like that, including the brakes, maybe a bit less than that. And then we took a one-way flight from Tbilisi to Baku. Now, Baku is the capital of Azerbaijan and is by far the largest city. And it's interesting because it sits right on the Caspian Sea and it's actually 28 meters below sea level. So it was a very, very different type of thing because you look out over the Caspian Sea and you kind of think that you were at the ocean but you're not. I mean, it's, it is a country that is on the water, but it's not on the ocean. But you're basically just on a sea, which is not connected to anything else. So that was kind of weird. Now, the population of Baku is around 2 million people, and the airport coming in was very large and efficient and very, very nice. Really, really high quality. I was quite impressed coming into the country. Now, when we came from the airport into old Baku, into the old town, which is where we were staying, it really feels like we were back home in the UAE. It's all these modern buildings and the lights and super, super beautiful. And I was like, wow, I turned to my wife and I'm like, we're home. Like, I feel like we're home. But the next day when we started to learn about things, we really realized we were not home. And I'll get get into some of those things in a minute. But really where we spent a lot of our time was in the old city. And this was very beautiful. They've done a lot of work in restoration to make it quite nice. We spent about a week in Azerbaijan and we stayed at the same hotel, even though we came and left a couple of times. But the old town was very, very, very nice. Now, Baku is this 
weird mix. If I had to break it down for you, I would say it's about 20% Dubai. That's that beautiful lights coming in from the airport and these modern buildings side by side and skyscrapers and lots of glass and everything is brand, brand new. It's like 20% Dubai. And then you have areas that are like USSR, like leftover from the Soviet Union and they got Soviet vehicles and all this Soviet stuff, which is just a very stark contrast from Dubai. And then where we were in kind of the old town and surrounding the old town is very European. It looks like a French city. And when you're walking down the street and everything is lit up, I'm like, wow, I could believe I was in France right now. And another 20% is like Turkish, like they're they consider themselves Turkey's little brother and they have so much Turkish food and Turkish influence and even the language is basically Azerbaijani is a dialect of Turkish. But then there's also this, I'd say probably about 15% of the country, of the overall country, which is very North Korean. It really reminded me of my time in North Korea. Now, the last, say, 5% of the whole country is distinctly its own, is, is Azerbaijani. But usually when I want to go to a place, I want to go to somewhere where it's like, distinctly its own or at least a higher percentage. But it was like, you know, just everywhere I went, I'm like, oh, that looks like Turkey. Oh, this looks exactly like North Korea or their attitude is exactly like North Korea. Oh, I think that they're trying to be Abu Dhabi and Dubai and the UAE with these buildings and with the Formula One and all of this. So it was this really, really weird mix. Now, Azerbaijan is a Muslim country, but one thing that was very interesting is it's I would say about 50-50 Shias and Sunnis, which is not normal. I mean, usually it's one or the other. And the other really weird thing is that they get along. Actually, the two sects of Islam, they seem to get along very, very well. Even our guide was, I think she was saying that she's a Shia and her husband is a Sunni. So that's a very different mix. Like, I don't think you would find that in Bahrain or Iran or something like that. I mean, it's just, just not very, very likely. Now, I would say Azerbaijan is probably the least Muslim Muslim country that I have ever been to in my life. I don't think that we heard the call to prayer even once while we were there for a week. I'm so used to five times a day, everywhere I go, no matter what, hearing the call to prayer. I mean, I had a mosque right outside of my house when I lived in Abu Dhabi, so it didn't even wake me up in the morning. I was just so used to it after years and years. But it was not a very, they didn't seem to practice Islam very closely. We didn't see people going to to the mosque or to call to prayer. We didn't seem to, they cared about these things at all. Another interesting thing is actually English was everywhere. Everything was written in English. It was really easy to get around in the country. And we met tons of people who spoke really phenomenal English too. Another thing to consider with Baku is the F1, the Formula One. That is so prominent in anything and everything that you see in this. All of these big buildings and all of the restoration in the old town, it's all to show off for the camera for F1. So the F1 is actually on the regular street. So you can see the starting line and the finish line and everything like that. And you see these Louis Vuitton signs that are around this bend and some other big designer brand around the next bend. And so it's really well thought out in this, but I think they want to be this world international city and they want to be on the center stage and they want to be Dubai or Abu Dhabi or something like that. But it's not, it's Baku. And 
when you look at all of these big buildings, you realize that they're not there because of entrepreneurship. They're not there because they need all this commercial real estate because people are building businesses or anything like that. It's like everything is state-sponsored. Everything is government-sponsored. When we're going around with our guide, she's like, this is the government building of here. This is the ministry of that. That one is the tourism and the courthouse. And like anything and everything was related to government. There was like no private businesses at all. And it was so funny. She's like, oh, that is the Ferris wheel. It's state-sponsored. I'm like, oh, cool. Let's go see it. She's like, it's broken. Like, oh, okay. Oh, what's that big ship down there? The cruise ship. Oh, yes, yes, yes. That's a state-sponsored cruise ship. It's broken. It doesn't work anymore. They didn't Proper, I can't remember what it was. It was like they didn't properly judge the depth of the waterways from Baku. So it's basically grounded and it can't be used. And it was just like over and over and over again. Like this doesn't work. Oh, that doesn't work. But she was proud that these were government buildings and the government had done all these things. But it was none of it was private businesses, which for me just means that it's all artificial. You know, it's all fake. And I don't like fake stuff. I like real stuff. I want the marketplace to decide. But really, it did come down to everything from the, the government all came from oil dollars. Now, this was really interesting. When we saw plays and operas and propaganda and everything like that, there was no woke agenda. There was no climate crisis or climate boiling or any of this nonsense. They were super proud that they are an oil-rich country. Like, they were bragging about it. They were so happy that they have hydrocarbons in that country. And without them, you could see that the country just would not be able to exist. It wouldn't have this level of wealth there whatsoever. But they're using all of this money for all these state-sponsored things to prop up all these industries and attract things like the Formula One and put up these high-rise buildings and all of this stuff. So that is just so weird to see. And it, when you talk to the people, or when we even talk to our guide, she would tell us like a thousand times, oh, Azerbaijan is a European democracy. Azerbaijan is a European democracy. First of all, I think that she had never been to Europe in my life because she had absolutely no idea what she was talking about. And to brag about being a European democracy, I thought was absolutely hilarious. Like, talk about a area of the world which is completely messed up and socialism is going crazy. Now, Europeans already lose their absolute minds when you tell them that Turkey is a European country. I mean, first of all, Turkey, geographically, a good portion of it is part of Europe and they're part of NATO. Now, you start telling people that Azerbaijan is a European country, they're heads are going to explode. Like, I just don't think the Europeans would like this whatsoever. But they would proudly say this. So we were asking lots about the politics, not just the, the geopolitics, but the politics inside the country and the executive branch and things like that. And when she was describing it to me, I'm like, this is not a democracy whatsoever. This is a complete fake, I mean, totalitarian type of regime and the amount of time they've been in place and what they do from the propaganda side. I mean, what an absolute farce. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm very happy I went to Azerbaijan. I'm very glad that I had a chance to go there. But I mean, like North Korea doesn't pretend to be a democracy. It doesn't 
pretend to be a land of freedom by any means. They know that they're this weird, kooky country with weird laws and propaganda everywhere and holding up the great leader. But Azerbaijan doesn't seem to see this at all, which I just think is very, very weird. We went to one of the big museums in Baku, and the museum itself was absolutely gorgeous. The outside of the museum was really, really interesting. The architecture, they don't have any straight lines. Everything is very flowing and curving. But once you get inside, it's basically the propaganda museum. It was so shit. I was absolutely shocked how you could take a museum and make it this bad. It was basically a whole section of it was gifts from other countries to Azerbaijan. And I saw museums exactly like this in North Korea when I was there for a few weeks. And it was basically trying to showcase the legitimacy of Azerbaijan as a sovereign nation and the legitimacy of the people in the government and the ruling party there. Then, So that was one big section. Another big section of it was like the cars. This is the car that the president drove from this year to this year. This is the limo that took him to this event. This is this car that took him over here, like all these 1980s, 1990s, year 2000 vehicles. So this was just like, I just do not care whatsoever, like at all. So we cut that tour very, very short and I was not impressed at all. You know, I want to see real cultural things, not this things that are just held up that are all make-believe by the government. But really, Azerbaijan just feels like a confused country that it has no idea what it's trying to do. As I said, part of it looks like it wants to be Dubai. Another part wants to be European. Part of it wants to be this North Korean dictatorship. You know, they even had London-style cabs there. Like this totally random import. Like why do you have London cabs in Baku? Like the great leader went to London and thought, hey, these are cool. I'm going to import a thousand of these to the country. So random. So you see that next to these USSR older vehicles that are like five grand a piece or something like that, these clunkers. It's so, so weird. We did go to see an opera while we were there. We were really excited about it. Like I said, I think in the last episode on Armenia, we love this type of cultural things, but it was all about the great leader. We really didn't know what we were about to see. We just thought it was going to be just an opera. And it was all about the great leader, you know, where he was born, and then about his kids and about his wife and then holding it up and then he fixed this and then he did this and then military parades. They had screens in the background and then they're singing over and then military parades and then a big segment on the oil industry and holding this up and it was just it's a bunch of flag waving. It was, I, I, I will stop about this, but I just can't, I couldn't get over it the whole week. I'm still reeling from the whole thing. Now, Once we got out of Baku, things calmed down a lot, and it was a lot nicer. The roads were amazing. The people seemed to be normal and relaxed. The scenery was fantastic. I really liked outside of Baku, especially compared to Baku. Outside of the city was much, much better. Now, there are probably more police in Azerbaijan than in any country I have ever seen in my life. Like, you see a police officer every minute, two minutes, and there's speed traffic 
traps everywhere on the highways. You're constantly speeding up, slowing down, speeding up, slowing down. We actually got pulled over once. The driver went out and talked to him. He had his cell phone with him. And I guess his brother is actually a police officer. So he just called his brother, passed the phone over. The whole thing was taken care of in about five minutes. And we were on with our journey. And no fines or tickets or anything like that. But just police officers everywhere. I mean, not not a, a nice sight to see by any means. For those interested in moving to another country, I highly recommend learning the local language before you arrive. After traveling for the last 23 years straight, I have seen many people fall into the expat bubble trap. This is where you move to a new country and you only talk to people from the USA or Canada and you are unable to make local friends. The best way to combat this is by having an understanding of the local language. And the best program I have ever seen for this is storylearningcourses.com. These are the programs I use to go from very crummy language skills to fluent in no time flat. The courses are fun and easy to understand and most importantly, really work. No matter where you are in your language learning abilities, go to storylearningcourses.com. That's storylearningcourses.com to learn more. The driver that we did have, he was the one that picked us up at the airport. He drove us about seven hours out to some remote areas of Azerbaijan. We did a couple day tour, then he drove us back and he took us to the airport again. He was really awesome. I really liked our driver. I sat up in the front seat with him the whole time. So we chit chatted and he had a three year old son. So he just loved my son and was always goofing off with him, which was really nice to see. He was probably the best driver I have ever seen in my life. He was so passionate about cars and he had this Mercedes van that we were driving in and the way that he was able to maneuver it through small cobblestone streets or back it into parking lots or or do anything, I was just I couldn't believe this man's skill with a vehicle. And that's a it was a big vehicle. I think it probably would have held about 16 people, even though there was only six of us plus the guide and him, so eight of us total. He was maneuvering this thing like crazy. It's like he was driving a little mini and we were in the Jason Bourne movies, you know? He was just so fast with it. I just couldn't believe it. Now, when we got out to the countryside, there were posters all over the place. In my last episode, we talked about Armenia and the war that they've had with Azerbaijan. Well, I guessed in Armenia, they lost about 5,000. In Azerbaijan, the guide was telling us they lost about 3,000. And there was posters everywhere of people's faces. It was very, very sad to see. Now, as we were traveling through Azerbaijan, we did see war memorials, but it was very different than being in Armenia. They were talking about the Azerbaijan genocide by the Armenians. The one, I think there was 190 people died, and I think the other one, 600 people died. Now, that's terrible, but I mean, it was like they were trying to push that it was the Azerbaijan genocide, the Azerbaijan genocide. If you said anything about Armenia, that's what they were trying to slip in. After we've just learned about the Armenia genocide where 1.5 million people, mostly women and children, were slaughtered, I mean, it was just, it just was not on the same level. And it was just felt very, very weird. Now, any life or any type of war or doing like this, it's all disgusting. I find all of it absolutely disgusting. But it, it seemed this like they were trying to steal this word or make it on the same level of what happened to Armenia. So it was a it was really, really bizarre feeling. And I just kind of kept my mouth shut with our guide and with the driver and didn't talk about it too much. 
So when we went out of Baku and we went to go visit outside of Azerbaijan to these more remote areas, we saw so many really, really cool things. So one of them was these mud volcanoes. And there was like, I don't know, hundreds of them, possibly, I think it was actually thousands of them. And we went and got to climb them. And the really wild thing is that actually you can light them on fire because it produces all of this gas. So you could take just a normal Bic lighter and light this little mud volcano on fire and it would just burn for a few minutes and then put itself out and then light it again. And there was like huge puddles and the, the volcanoes just move from one to the other and then they go out and another one goes on. It was a really weird topography of the country that I just have not seen. I think I've seen mud volcanoes before in other places, but not like this. And they actually call Azerbaijan the land of fire. And we went and saw areas where the fire has been burning for thousands of years. There was actually a mountain that I guess in history, the entire mountain mountain used to be on fire because of the natural gas that was coming out of this. And actually, even speaking about the land of fire, the other one was that we got to see a lot of the Zoroastrian temples, where they're basically fire worshippers. Now, when I was in Iran back, I want to say in 2011 or 2012, I learned a lot about the Zoroastrian religion and what they did, and I got to go and see some of the temples in Iran. Well, this is very, very similar to that. So that was really cool for me because I had this been 10, 15 years since I've seen anything about this. And you you could really see that they traveled back and forth between these regions and spread this religion throughout the area. We also visited a bunch of caves, which were several hundred miles from Baku, where women and children would hide during the wars. We also got to see a monastery where Sufi monks would actually pray. They would go there for months at a time and basically just sit in a hole. Now, I've read a lot of Sufi poetry in my life, so that was pretty cool to see where this started and how this went. We also got to see the petroglyphs at Gobastan. Now, these date back somewhere between 5,000 and 20,000 years ago. They're basically like pictographs on the side of the rocks depicting different things, different types of animals like the bulls and livestock. There was just so many of those. So that was really wild to see. We went to a palace while we were there, which was gorgeous. And we saw basically like stained glass, but instead of wrought iron that connects everything together, it's all done with like dowel and wood and put together. So they make everything by hand and it fits together like a jigsaw puzzle. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to take any pictures inside. They wouldn't allow us, but that was really, really gorgeous. We went and saw a caravan sarai, so really on the Silk Road where the caravans would stop while they're bringing goods from, say, China to Europe. They would stop in all these places. So we got to go and visit that. I've stayed at a caravan sarai in Iran before, but these ones were a lot bigger, like, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of rooms, and they'd have the horses or the camels or the livestock that they were bringing with them hid in a certain area, and then it was kind of also worked as a bit of a fort as well to protect people. While we were doing these tours, I also had a lot of chance to talk with the guides about COVID and how things were handled. So I guess in Azerbaijan, they had very, very strict lockdowns and they actually had forced vaccination, which I thought was just horrendous. I couldn't believe they would actually force someone to get vaccinated. But I, I suppose it doesn't surprise me with such an absolutely massive government there that they would go to these types of things. Now, the currency in the country seemed to be pretty much pegged about 1.7 manat to a US dollar. So it was good to see that the, at least the currency and the inflation was not out of control in the country and that it was pretty stable there. I would say 
Overall, my opinion of Azerbaijan is it's excellent to go there for a week. Definitely, if you have an opportunity to go and see the country, you should. There's thousands of years of history there. Get out of Baku for sure. Baku's interesting, and it's that weird dynamic mix that I talked about. But once you get out, it gets a lot more special. If I ever went back to Azerbaijan, and to be honest with you, I doubt that I will. I would spend all of my remaining time outside of it, and I would spend a couple of days in each town and really get to know that area, look more at the handcrafts, meet more of the local people, see more of the mosques and more of the monuments, learn more about the history. You know, we were only there for one week, and I think we spent too much time in Baku and only two days out in the countryside where we probably should have swapped it around. I think that would have been a better idea. Overall, I would say it is not an expat destination whatsoever, at least not for what my people are looking for. I could see possibly Armenia. You know, lots of people go to Georgia, but I would completely cross Azerbaijan off the list completely. As I said earlier, English is widely spoken, so it's easy to get around as a tourist. The food was okay. I mean, it's pretty fresh. It's pretty good quality, but it was a bit boring. It just seemed a rehashing of Turkish food. If I want Turkish food, I'll go to Turkey. It's cheaper there. There's more selection, more options. There wasn't much in the way of international food, so I would get bored pretty quickly. They didn't seem to do anything of their own. There was nothing unique, and you know, it was just Okay, of the four countries we went to, I'd put Azerbaijan on the worst of the food, but it was fresh, it was wholesome, it was nutritious, so that's fine. Anyways, I hope you guys enjoyed this final episode in the series about the countries we visited. I hope that we gave you a bit of insights on a new country maybe you don't know very much about or have never heard of before. That's it for this series. Make sure you guys go to expatmoney.com. Make sure you subscribe to our email newsletter. putting in a ton of energy and effort on that one. And that is where you guys are going to be able to stay up to date with all of the new programs, the news, the work that we're doing at Expat Money, and all of the new events that we've got lined up going into 2024. I hope you guys have a great day. We will see you next Wednesday, 6 a.m. Eastern time. Take care. Thanks. Super exciting news. We just released our first in a series of expat guidebooks. These are in-depth country guides on how to move to another country. And the first one released is Expat's Guide on Moving to Mexico. It took us over two years to compile all the research and write this book on Mexico. And coming in at 475 pages, you can really see how much work has gone into this. It's a complete guide on everything you need to know if you want to move to Mexico including where to live, immigration, taxes, lifestyle, buying property, how to get a driver's license, and a million other things you would never think you need the answers to. You can find the book directly on Amazon by searching for Expat's Guide on Moving to Mexico or go to expatguidebooks.com, which will take you to our online shop where you will find the book. Go to expatguidebooks.com. That's expatguidebooks.com. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, 
Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.